This episode is brought to you by Great Waters Financial. You got to give to be rich because there's two kinds of rich in the world. There's money rich and there's spiritual rich. And you can only be spiritually rich when you believe there's enough to share, enough to go around. That's Tim Sanders, New York Times bestselling author on this episode. Put your faith to work. This is the Bold Idea Podcast with ideas, interviews, and inspiration to bring your bold ideas to life. Here are your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bold Idea Podcast. This is Larry Gates. And Armin Asadi. And we are bringing to you just another superb guest to talk about love in the business place. Now, it seems like an odd combination of things, but I'll tell you, this guy has written literally the book on it. Tim Sanders spent most of his career on the cutting edge of innovation and change He was in the ground floor of the quality movement, the launch of the mobile phone industry, and most notably, the birth of the World Wide Web. He worked with Mark Cuban on Broadcast.com, which had the largest opening day in IPO history, was acquired by Yahoo, and after working there, he became the chief solutions officer for that company and a leadership coach in 2005. Tim is the author of several books, including the New York Times bestseller, Love is a Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. His other books include Today We're Rich, The Likeability Factor, Saving the World at Work, and Deal Storming. And so without further ado, we want to welcome Tim Sanders to the Bold Idea Podcast. Well, I'm glad to be with you guys. I've been looking forward to this, Tim, because you are kind of a little bit of a business rock star here. You know a ton of people and have had quite a storied career moving from company to company. Your book, Love is a Killer App, was on the New York Times bestseller list. And you also travel all over the world giving keynote speeches. So what is your bold idea? What's the thing that you like to impress upon your audiences? I think the bold idea I have is that you can accomplish anything you want in life if you totally focus your efforts on helping other people be successful. That's just something I was raised to believe by my grandmother. There are classic books that support this idea, whether we go all the way back to Dale Carnegie or Norman Vincent Peale, most notably. We think about the great work of Zig Ziglar, right? See you at the top. We've always believed that you can have whatever you want if you help people get what they want. But what I particularly learned years ago when I was working for Mark Cuban is that we live in times of change. And during great times of change, we should be the mentor. We should be the super connector. We should be that one person who cares because we create the world we want to live in. And we have a profound influence on other people in our life. And so whatever it is you want, you should model that and other people will definitely follow you because, you know, after all, guys, that's what we do in our faith. Hmm. So is that something you learned from Mark Cuban or where did you pick that up from? No, I actually had believed it. It's just that the business world wasn't very much embracing it. I'd never found the right culture. Most of the companies I worked at had a typical default culture and it was like every person for themselves and you eat what you kill. (laughs) And when I went to work for Cuban, he just had a remarkable attitude about customer service. His motto was make love, not war. And what he meant by that was find ways to be helpful, find ways to be empathetic, find ways to be different than everybody else in business by really showing the customer you care. He believed that. I mean, everybody I've ever talked to that knew Mark, 
even before I met him in 1997, when he still had that scrappy little computer services company, they said he would do anything to make a customer happy because he truly cared about their outcomes. And that was just such a rare dude to work for and a rare company and a rare time, right? Turn just right about the turn of the century. So much was changing. And so when I went to work there, Mark and his culture embraced me saying, this is how we're going to go to market. I'm going to educate. I'm going to mentor. I'm going to help every customer I talk to. I'm not just going to sell them something. Mark even believed that if a client wasn't happy with service, you can tear the invoice up without having to ask permission, even if we spent money out of pocket. And it was just a really, really unique strategy. Here's the last thing I'd say. So when I met Mark in 97, like the middle of that year, he'd probably read 50 books that year. And not just on computer stuff and internet, everything that possibly could relate to it. History of business, how brands were built, structure of financial markets, future of entertainment. He believed that when the world is changing, we need to be the ones that are really committed to understanding why, and it's in the books, and that our job was to help companies save themselves and move into the future. And that really created that opportunity for me, not only there at markcubansbroadcast.com, but a few years later after he sold the company at Yahoo. You know, when you wrote Love is a Killer App, you share quite a few stories about how you were able to actually get some pretty big deals by being inspired by some of the books that you were reading. So was it was it Mark that inspired you to do that? Or did that come, did you really? Yeah kick up your reading game as a result of watching and seeing Mark and how he applied that? So so not only did Mark inspire that, but a couple of other of, of my startup associates were doing the same thing, inspired by Mark. So another guy, just two desks down from me, Carl Meisenbach, he and I created our own little book club. And he threw a book on my desk that he just read and gave me like three highlights of why it was relevant, like to our customers. And I'd put a book on his desk that, that I'd read, same thing. So we kind of spun each other up. And, and I got to the point where I was reading probably a book every week or two. And half the books I read, I read on behalf of customers. If they were retailers, I'd read books on the future of e-commerce or the science of shopping. So I could put myself into their shoes and at the same time, put myself in a good situation to teach them as well. So that was just the culture of our group to be those kind of reader leaders. And I think that a lot of people, they don't do that these days. And so once I started doing it, you guys, I started to figure out how to make time for it. That's the secret, right? That's why I hadn't read so much. And a few things I learned from our culture that have helped me. Number one, I don't sleep on planes. Hmm. Unless I'm flying international. I don't sleep on planes. Mm -hmm. I consider a cross-country flight an opportunity to read an entire book without any interruptions. So that's what I do. I read while I fly. I've flown 10 million miles since I left Yahoo. So trust me, I've had a lot of time to read. (laughs) I like to listen to audiobooks if I'm commuting. I read before I go to sleep instead of watching TV. I learned this next trick from John Maxwell. I read when I first get up. So when I get up, I walk my dog, I start the coffee, I sit down, and, and as Dr. Max says, I comb my brain. That's an old Norman Mailer saying. But I read, I read from a book that first 45 minutes. And then I steal time after lunch when most of us do the web surfing after we finish eating. I try to get a chapter in. So... I've really made reading programmatic for myself, and it's made a big difference. Wow, that's intense. One of the things that you mentioned before we got into the Mark Cuban topic, you said this is how you've grown up. Now, on the web, it's easy to find 
a lot about you in terms of interviews that you've done, business ventures, motivation, all sorts of stuff. But what there isn't much about is how you grew up and what your childhood was like. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'd be glad to. And the good news is I did write a memoir about my grandmother and my life on the farm. It's called Today We Are Rich. And later on, we'll talk about how everybody listening can take a the first chapter and the first principle away for free. But I grew up on a farm. I was raised by my grandmother. She took me in after my mother felt like she couldn't or wouldn't be able to raise me. And my grandmother lost her husband and her two boys right after she took me in. Very, very bitter, awful divorce. So we were in a tough situation on a farm, in an old farmhouse. And to make matters worse, a few years into school, second grade, I was moved into the special education program, mostly because I was a discipline problem. And I was really depressed as a little kid. I, I Words cannot describe how depressed I was as a little kid. So I was a special education student until sixth grade. And the reason that they had to put me back in general population is at the end of the sixth grade, I finished because it's all self-paced, I finished their entire curriculum. So they put me back in seventh grade, so you guys can imagine, I had a really tough transition mm. in junior high school and public school, especially since my nickname in the seventh grade was Short Bus. We could talk about that. <laughs> oh, no. Bullied a lot. I would say that the turning point for me, though, would be school picture day, seventh grade. One of the bullies who we knew from church, and I won't even say his name. I used to say his name in old interviews, and finally he heard one. It just broke his heart, and I'll tell you why, because we're buddies now. But he had <laughs> uh, punched me right in the nose in the boys' bathroom, and I was wearing a crisp white church shirt that day for the picture. So anyway, I wasn't in the picture that year. I missed it. So when Billy came to school, I thought she was going to just, you know, really give it to that boy's mom or dad or whoever came to pick him up. And instead, when Billy and I were sitting in the vice principal's office alone for a second, she turns to me. And she says, you know what the problem here is? And I said, no. She says, the problem here is that you don't love that boy enough. Mm. She goes, that's the problem with that boy. Nobody loves him. And I said, and I called her mom because she raised me. I said, mom, did that boy, did you see what he did? Look at my shirt. Look at my noise. How can you love that guy? And she looks at me and she says, in this family, we love people not because of who they are, we love people because of who we are. Mm. And, you know, she's modeling Christ when she says that. Mm -hmm. And she goes, that's what makes us different. She says, so you invite that boy over and let's get to know him better. So anyway, a few weeks later, invite him over after church. He comes over, steals some stuff, roughs me up a little bit. <laughs> Doesn't punch me in the nose this time, so we've made great strides. <laughs> He felt like he should invite me over. So about a month later, I go over after church and I discovered that Billy was right. We walk in the door. His drunk dad throws a beer can across the living room at his head as if to greet him and then curse profanity. Mm. His mother, listless, doesn't even make eye contact with anybody over lunch that day. His older brother bullies him, beats him in front of me with a horse bridle. And oh. that's when I got it. This guy was a bully because that's all he was surrounded by. So he and I struck up a friendship. And much like with the other bullies, I found my way to get in where I fit in and feed the favor economy. I found ways to match one of my talents to one of their needs, whether I gave them advice, kept them out of trouble. I negotiated with the vice principal once on their number of SWATs in the eighth grade, trying to act like a fake attorney before we had the internet to look up things. <laughs> 
And I think most of those bullies believe that when they grew up and I grew up, I'd, I'd be their, I'd be their lawyer and I'd be, I'd be the thing that would keep them out of jail. Hmm. And what's so interesting about this story is if you fast forward to my junior year, that bully, as well as a few other notorious bullies from junior high, those are the guys that put up posters and handed out pins when I ran and won senior class president. Hmm. So, you know, the background for me has been tough and certainly filled with adversity and depression and a lot of things that I know listeners must be going through. But boy, did I learn that if you can screw your head on right about other people and love them unconditionally and assume they are paying it forward, you can make great things happen with your story. And and I've seen thousands of people do the same thing in my travels. You know, it sounds like Mark Cuban gave you ostensibly space to do what your grandmother had instilled inside of you in that important lesson you learned as a kid. Yeah, exactly. And for me to go back to business wonk here, so what Cuban did, and he did it consciously, because later he always talks about you build culture when you only have one employee, right? Because every every company's got to have one. You don't wait till you have a thousand employees to say, okay, what's the culture here? What do we value? How do we do things? So here's the secret. Cuban built a culture that matched my family's culture. Mm -hmm. A corporate culture is a conversation led by its leaders about how we do things here successfully. And when there's a strong culture, the leader acts on it. They hire people because of it. Sometimes they fire people because of it. It's a huge part of what they talk about, rituals during the workplace, how they promote people to managers. So what Cuban did is build a conversation about what made us different, how we were successful at the company, and what we valued. And it totally matched the way I grew up. And I think it's important for leaders to always ask themselves, you know, am I building a culture that human beings, good-hearted, faith-driven human beings can resonate with? Now, I'm going to speak in an event later this year um, for Chick-fil-A managers and talk about a company who successfully built an internal culture that not only created values that were good for communities and customers and the bottom line, it attracted a certain type of person, especially in management, that has made that company very special. Hmm. Do you still have a relationship with Mark Cuban today? Nobody has a relationship with Mark if they ain't writing him a check. I mean, I'm just going to say that. It's not a slag on the guy. This dude's busy. I think I think that, um, to quote Snoop Dogg, more people trying to get at him than the president. You know what I mean? So... <laughs> You know, I've seen him. We high five. We have friendly emails back and forth. He's always been a supporter of me. I'm one of his biggest fans. I talk about him a lot. But yeah, you know, I I think I've seen Damon Johns a few more times than I've seen Mark in the last 10 years. <laughs> Did not expect the Snoop Dogg quote from you. <laughs> oh, yeah. you you guys, you'll get it from me. I've got I've got at least four hip hop quotes to invent. They're all but, but they're all appropriate. <laughs> this is good. <laughs> so talk about what it's like to be a love cat. You mentioned in your book three principles of being a love cat. Talk about those for a minute. A love cat is a person who finds their success by loving and giving to other people. Most others scratch their head when they they think about this love cat. They wonder how he or she gets by being so stupidly generous. I just have to tell you before I give you the three attributes. So love cat is kind of a mashup, if you will. There was an old song when I was in my younger days by a band called The Cure in the 1980s. It's called Love Cats. And one of the lines I could never get out of my head was this one. We move like cagey tigers, but no two could get closer than this. And I thought about the accountability that we hold each other with when we love someone. 
not your buddy, not your friend, not your college roommate that's going to let you buy with anything. I'm talking about your grandmother, how accountable she holds you to take the gifts she gives you and do something with them. So that's the love cat mentality. When I decided to use it in the book is because I'd heard Herb Kelleher, founder of Southwest Airlines, referred to as a tough old love cat. Here's a guy that would hug you, but here's a guy that would admonish you at the same time. (laughs) So a love cat does three things. A love cat shares their knowledge as a way of building the foundation of a relationship. A love cat brings the gift of knowledge to every conversation. They're frequently studying, collecting, refining, collaborating. They are that fountain of knowledge, especially during times of change. This kind of goes back to my central role as a salesperson working for Mark Cuban. I shared knowledge with customers. I didn't sell things. The knowledge led them on a path back to us. These days, organizations like Corporate Executive Board, they call that commercial teaching. It's thoughtful, it's helpful, it moves things forward, but it brings things back to you. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you got to do as a love cat is share knowledge every time you can. And sometimes you need to mentor. And we can talk about the unique way I think about mentorship later. The second thing you need to do is you need to share your network of relationships. Your network of relationships is your greatest net worth. Nothing has more punching power than your friends and friends of friends, especially your contacts in the business world. The third thing the love cat does is share compassion. Compassion means to me at least that I desire that you do not suffer unnecessarily. I desire that you find success and happiness and most of all purpose in your life. When you share your knowledge, you make people smarter. And by the way, guys, you never get dumber by sharing information with Mm -hmm. other people in this world we live in. Information is not power. Distributed information is rocket fuel, I believe, for relationships. Your network doesn't shrink as you share it if you do it very, very intelligently, matching the right people with the right opportunities and, of course, thinking about personalities, right? And, And the most important thing I take away from it is that When you build up all this trust and loyalty by sharing your knowledge and your network, your willingness to be there and be encouraging during the moments they need it, to be brave enough to touch in a world where we are so worried about being politically correct, to be empathetic, to be the one person in the world that actually accepts your feelings as facts. These things we share in compassionate moments with other people, those are the things that turn bullies into mentors. Mm. Those are the things that take listless people who have no sense of engagement about life and makes them instantly more effective because if I think about psychology, Abraham Maslow specifically, when people are dealing with struggles or unmet needs, it's really hard for them to love. And sometimes by showing people compassion, we create a place for them where they feel like they're safe. They feel like anything's possible. And sometimes they feel like finally they've got someone that cares about them and it just unleashes all kinds of things in that person, not only making them more compassionate, but putting them back on that road to becoming what they were born to be. That's good. This is the Bold Idea Podcast. Hey, Armin, I have a question for you. A little nervous, but go ahead, bring it on. What would your 65-year-old self say to you right now? Oh, well, it would probably start with a slap upside my head and follow with a please stop being an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. I'm glad you agree. Thanks a lot. Larry. How did you know? <laughs> Have you encountered my old self? <laughs> no, I've encountered mine too. Oh. That's why we all need to know about Great Waters Financial. All right, listen, all kidding aside, Great Waters Financial is a company that I would put my name and reputation behind any chance I get. It's a company filled with people that I know firsthand, have character, have integrity, you can trust and you can rely on. And this is a company that I believe is one of the best at what they do. Great Waters Financial, based here in Minneapolis, is a financial planning team that will help you customize a financial plan just for you to get you into retirement and to live it greatly. And they prepared a report for our listeners to download. The six things your 65-year-old self would want you to know about Social Security. And if you want to see that report, just go to greatwatersfinancial.com forward slash bold idea. Investment advisory services offered through Advisor Net Wealth Management. Great Waters Financial and Advisor Net Wealth Management are not affiliated. Insurance products provided by Great Waters Financial, a Minnesota insurance agency. You know, I can't help but hear that there is, no matter what you talk about, there's almost like a biblical theme to everything. It's like the subtext to everything that you talk about. And I know your grandmother, you said, kind of was the person that brought you into church and that all that stuff. But I'm really curious about your faith. At what point did your faith become a big deal to you? Was it just through your grandmother? The day after she took me in it became a big deal. Let me tell you something. I was raised in a premillennial, fundamental, independent Baptist church in eastern New Mexico. Jehovah's Witnesses would come over and they'd listen to Billy talk and they'd go, man, you guys are strict. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Saudi Arabia for a gig last And this is actually, no joke, I was in Saudi Arabia for a gig last year with the International Public Administration, which is all the deputy ministers. And I was describing to them some of our tenets of faith in, in premillennial, independent, fundamental Baptist. And I believe they, too, were just taken aback. They're like, really? You can't do that? So I'm telling you, I was brought up in a very serious Christian household. We went to church five to six days a week. I'm not kidding, guys. Wow. Sunday was like the Super Bowl for us, okay? All the other days were functional, all right? <laughs> so Monday, we didn't do anything. Tuesday night was visitation. Wednesday night, we had our own service, usually a missionary out of town. Thursday, we do outreach. That's where I'd go out on bus outreach. We'd go out to the edges of the town and find kids whose parents, you know, wouldn't take them in. Friday, we'd create an entertainment alternative at the church so the kids wouldn't think they'd have to go drag Main Street and dance. And then Saturday was training. And that was anybody that was thinking about being a communicator or thinking about being a musician in the church got together to rehearse or train or whatever. So it was like, that was a big deal to me. In our farmhouse, we only had seven or eight books. Besides Chariots of the Gods, which I thought was science fiction, it was the only science fiction book I we had in the house, so to speak. <laughs> By the way, for those of you that don't know, that's a book about the rapture. We had the Bible, of course, King James Version. We had books like Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz, classic book published in 1961, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, Norman Vincent Peale's Power of Positive Thinking, Dale Carnegie's How to Stop Worrying and Start Living, James Allen, As a Man Thinketh, really important book from 1921. And then we kind of round that collection out probably with a stack of little Midnight Cries, which was another publication that was very popular when I was growing up. So early on, my point is, this was all I knew. 
even in special ed during those years, you have to understand self-paced courses are like Dick meets Jane. I wasn't exposed to real literature probably until the seventh or eighth grade. Mm. So I began to get exposed to secular thinking. So it is in my DNA. Ooh, there's another hip hop reference, Kendrick Lamar's new record. It is in my, <laughs> I got, I got, I got Bible in my DNA. I would tell you that. So everything I do has a reference point back to that, right? So even when I was exposed to secular literature, business literature, leadership literature through the ages, I've always found connection points, the good stuff, at least the servant leadership stuff that I like, not the Machiavellian. So it's always kind of goes back to that. And it's provided me a nice framework really for understanding the difference between right and wrong when it comes to thought leadership in business, because there's a huge difference. Well, earlier you teased your new book about your grandmother. So talk about uh, Today We Are Rich. So Today We Are Rich is a story about Billy King, my grandmother, and seven principles that she grew up raised by during the Great Depression. And she shared those principles with me to turn my life around twice. So we've mentioned the first turnaround, you know, where I went from short bus to senior class president. And then later, when I graduated from college, my father, who I was going to be reunited with, her son, was killed. And it was a really big, it was a really big break in my faith that period of time. I mean, Mm. I finally was going to get back together with him. He had been a writer in San Francisco for some famous sitcoms like Soap and Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, et cetera. He lived a very crazy lifestyle. He'd never thought it would be appropriate to raise me. But after college, we were going to get back together again and both live in the same market. And and when that was all taken away from me, I, I lost a lot of my faith as well as a lot of my focus. And I must say, I went sideways in my career for a good 12 or 13 years. And then finally, one day I realized I needed to get back to that guy senior year of high school, freshman year of college, you know, class president, national champion debater. So I called Billy and I was like, okay, I get it. You've been telling me I've had a bad attitude for years. I want to do better. I want to do great for my wife and my son. What do I do? And she asked me the most important question, and it's a coaching question, most important question that you could ever ask someone who's going through a personal recession. They're going sideways. She asked me, what are you not doing today that you were doing back in the day? when you were on top. Hmm. That's where it all came back to me. Back in the day when I was on top, I fed my mind good stuff and I defended that. I didn't hang out with negative people. I didn't graze on media. I got up every morning just like Billy did, modeled for me, and I, I designed what went into my mind and who I hung out with. I moved conversations forward. I was the one in the conversation that would give you get you off the discussion of lack and get you on the discussion of opportunity. I sincerely believed that you had to exercise your gratitude muscle. Most important principle she taught me. She taught me gratitude's a muscle, not a feeling. You got to work it out every day. I realized that you got to give to be rich because there's two kinds of rich in the world. There's money rich and there's spiritual rich. And you can only be spiritually rich when you believe there's enough to share, enough to go around. I also learned that it was really important to prepare thyself, that to be confident you had to do the preparation work required to win. And by the way, not that he's a good Christian influence, but Coach Bobby Knight from Indiana University always said, and he influenced Mark Cuban, everybody wants to win, but only a few people are willing to do the hard work to prepare to win. It's an important principle to me. Mm -hmm. The sixth principle is that we must balance our confidence with purpose. When I look at thought leadership, when I hear people talk about follow your passion, I hear 
the solicitation of self. I believe instead we should follow a purpose and we will develop a passion for that purpose, something greater than ourselves. It's the thing that keeps us from becoming overconfident. It's the thing that keeps us from false humility. It's that balancing act, finding that sense of purpose. Then finally, number seven, promise made, promise kept. And that's the thing that Billy taught me about longevity in your relationships, in your career, in your situation at work, you will ultimately be judged by the little things you did or did not finish. So those are the principles that she raised me with, but I think the most profound ones are principle one, feed your mind good stuff, principle three, exercise your gratitude muscle, and principle six, balance your confidence with purpose. Yeah, talk more about that in really laying out the whole idea of passion and purpose. So, I've always been very interested in the study of purpose. So when you follow your passion, what you're following is a sense of psychological gratification that you get when you're doing something. So I'll just, I always love to use the music example. So music was my passion. I wanted to be in bands. I wanted to play. I played in church. Later on, I played reggae music. And I always wanted to be a musician. And that was my passion. And what I meant by that is that when I played music, whether I was writing or rehearsing or just jamming, time would fly by. It was absolutely rewarding psychologically. It didn't feel like work. The problem is, is that if we pursue that in life, we are pursuing something very self-centered. And I don't mean self-centered necessarily in the bad way, but it becomes our North Star. What do I want to do? Purpose is different. I'm going to kind of move away from talking spiritual purpose. Let me just talk to you academically speaking. When you have a purpose, and I think about the researchers, when you have a purpose, what you've figured out is you've figured out something that makes a difference outside. So there's a Stanford professor, his name is William Damon, and he defines one's purpose as a stable and generalized intention to accomplish something that is at the same time meaningful to the self and consequential for the world beyond the self. The word purpose comes from a Latin phrase that means to put forth with intention, okay? So your purpose then becomes the thing you do that makes a difference and you have a passion for the difference that you make. So it has a meaning outside of your own set of experiences. And the reason this is so important to balance you is that a person with a purpose is accountable to that purpose. They are accountable to something greater than themselves in subscribing Mm -hmm. to that purpose. And that's what keeps them focused on something other than what they want. Because I believe that anytime we let self be the center of our decision-making structure, it is so easy for us to come down with that scarcity mindset, right? The one that Dr. Stephen Covey Sr. wrote about. That belief that there's not enough to go around that causes us to compete when we should collaborate, causes conflict in our life. A lot of it starts with the focus on self. But I find when people are focused on other They develop that abundance mentality, right? That I have enough to share because they're so focused on the other. They're not gripped with whether or not you gain something and I lose something. So I think it makes a really big difference. I think the trick for me, though, was, okay, if purpose is really important to us, how do we find one, right? Yeah, that's that's my big question. you, You basically asked my question for me, so I'm glad you're going there. One of the, one of the many books I read in that, first year of deep reading and I was because I was on a rotation business book business book customer book spiritual book psychology book well one of the psychology books I read was a book called man's search for meaning 
by Viktor Frankl. Everyone listening, F-R-A-N-K-L. <laughs> Just put that in Google. That's right. Frankl and meaning. And you're about, you're one click away from one of the greatest books ever written mm. on, on the science of purpose. So Dr. Frankl was a Nazi war camp survivor. He was a psychologist later after he survived the Nazi war camp because of purpose. He created what's called logotherapy, and that's helping people get over suffering by finding a sense of meaning in their life. And what Viktor Frankl said was, when there is purpose, there is no suffering. And when he was checked into the war camp during World War II, he had just completed his book on logotherapy, which was going to be a, it's like Abraham Maslow level game changer, okay? One of the guards tore the manuscript up in front of Victor. The reason he didn't die and all of his friends did, he says later, is because he had a purpose. He had to live so that he could get out, get paper, and rewrite that book, mm. which he did. And that kept him alive. So there was a little thing he hinted in the book that kind of set me down the path on finding my purpose. He said the meaning of your life will put an appearance in when you are in the act of doing something good. Mm. And that's the voice of God. During a moment of contribution that tells you, this is it. It doesn't come from out of the blue because you have to, now remember my background, I'm not saying, that you to be the elect, you must be worthy. And you must be doing things that create that modeling that leads to that voice in your ear. So I've learned that when you're out in a very charitable way doing things for people, going with that little tug that says, help him, help her. Those are the moments when purpose checks in and says, this is what your life's about. I mean, think of anybody you guys have known. Think about someone who's really on purpose. She will always point back to that one time, you know, when she was in high school and somebody got hurt and she helped that person get a little sling for his arm and she saw him go from a tear to a smile and she's like, that's when I knew I wanted to be a nurse. Okay, that's the experience we have. So, Several years ago, and I mean like when I was leaving Yahoo, I kind of went through an exercise like this, and I was like, what's my purpose? What's my purpose? Well, I remembered that when Billy raised me, she used to always say our calling, because we didn't call it a purpose back mm -hmm. then in the 60s. It was your calling. And some of us were the elect, and others were prayer warriors. But the calling was always at the intersection of, let's just say, your assets as a human being and the opportunities that are presented to you. So I always tell people during my lectures, like, take a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle. On the left, I want you to write my assets. Like, what do I got? They could be talent. They could be relationships. They could be my sense of intuition. Whatever it is, think about your assets, the things you can bring to the world. And then on the right side of that page, write down my opportunities. I want you to think about things that you're passionate about, things you have an opportunity to participate in, things in the world you want to change. And so that becomes your list of opportunities to make a difference. And if you do this exercise, so very often you'll find a connection point. I know I did. So I went through this exercise, again, over 15 years ago. And I write down my assets. And I say, well, you know, I, 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 researcher, I research really well. Speaking, a public speaker, it's something that I was raised to do. And then I wrote down this and wrote down this. What are my assets? I got money I can contribute. What's another asset? I got a huge network I could contribute. So I wrote down my assets and I started to write down all the opportunities. 
And I kind of centered around the opportunity. One of them was, is to change lives with speeches. And I remembered kind of playing Bible bingo, right? That's another old school thing that some of us used to do. We used to play Bible bingo. You kind of open the Bible to a random page. I had come across this scripture, and it was a scripture out of Hebrews. And this will be King James Version, but it says, I'm sorry, I'm reading out of the Tyndale book, so it will be the Tyndale version. <laughs> Let us, <laughs> little little fun Christian publishing joke there. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, especially as we gather in public during these the last days. Mm-hmm. Well, that was it, you guys. That's my purpose. Mm. My purpose was to motivate one another to acts of love and good works as we gather together in public. So what should I be? I should be an author and a public speaker. And I live on that purpose, and it drives me. And no matter how tough the trip is, how unusual the crowd situation is, because I do, I, do I do a lot of really weird gigs, because I, I love to talk to, to, to all kinds of people in need, it's never, it's never a struggle. I mean, when I say this, like I could go through anything in pursuit of that purpose. So, so for the listeners, I think the trick is to match those assets with opportunities and find that intersection point. And if you still can't figure it out, just follow your instinct when it comes to helping people and that voice will show up. Mm, love that. That's good. Now you, you mentioned you did that about 15 years ago. I'm kind of just wanting to bring us to a close here. What's next for you? What's your next bold idea? If you put that asset and opportunity list together, where do you see yourself heading here in the near future? I'm thinking about writing more about how we stay in love with people over relationships, right? Because it's it's easy for that that initial that initial connection that we have to people. Mm-hmm. It's easy for that to fade for a lot of reasons. People can disappoint us, they can take advantage of us, they can change with respect to their values, their personality. So I want to write a book on longevity and love. And I certainly practice it. I certainly think a lot about maintaining long-term relationships. My manager, my speaking manager, she's been with me over 10 years. In our industry, you turn it over all the time. I don't because I've thought a lot about the key assumptions we make. So I'll kind of close out with you guys by giving you a couple of assumptions that I live by that keep my relationships going for a long time Mm. and keep me loving people for a long time. So I've already revealed number one. You love them because of who you are, not because of who they are. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, although you can really helps you know love them a lot if they're good people. But what can you do? <laughs> <laughs> Billy would like literally slap me if she heard that. But anyway, that that's me. I'm 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 of a different generation. Number two, assume that everyone that gets in your way in life is operating under the best intentions. I'm talking traffic. I'm talking work. I'm talking church. There's people in your life you want to be mad at. Mm -hmm. They bump into you over something. They're rude to you. They're clumsy with you socially. Whatever it is, you will be a happier, more faith-based person, more effective person if you believe that every single person that gets into your way is operating under the best intentions. And to those that say, well, that's that's a really, you know, optimistic view. Well, guess what? You usually don't know why people do the things they do. But if you did know, it would change your perspective. So ask. Give you a classic example where I learned this. I mentioned before Dr. Covey. Dr. Covey Sr., really important mentor to me in my life early on when I was a writer. We had the same agent, spent time with him. He shared shared a story with me. I don't think it's in Seven Habits. But 
there was a stockbroker that he met at one of his sessions. And the stockbroker was going home one day on this train in New York after a horrible day on the trading floor. The market had gone down. His clients had lost a lot of money. It was an incredibly stressful day. He's on the train and he's sitting there just feeling awful. And this woman and her five kids were also in their compartment and the kids were going crazy. They were all over the place. They were loud. They were screaming. They were trying to get into his briefcase. And after five stops, she's just looking off in space. So the stockbroker finally turns to her and angrily says, what is wrong with you? Can't you control your kids? And without even looking back at him, she says softly, I really don't know what to do right now. They've just lost their father, and I'm taking them home to their grandparents. Hmm. Stockbroker said to Dr. Covey, I will never judge someone so quickly again. So I think it's really important for us to understand that behind that person is a struggle or is a purpose. I mean, sometimes people have their own agenda and it is a good agenda, taking care of their family, taking care of their company, sometimes taking care of their group. And you guys run into each other, you know, over resources. And if you believe this principle, at least in your life, it won't make you crazy and it won't create conflict. Finally, the last assumption that I think helps us stay in love with people, especially those we give the most to, is always assume they're paying it forward. Mm. Because if you expect them to say thank you or give gratitude to you or give you recognition, if you expect that, that's the weakness of human that separates us from the greatness of God, right? Yeah, what about the last leper? What yeah. about the last leper? That's the human nature. That was humanity. Mm -hmm. Because the human has ego. We have ego economics. We expect people to reciprocate. Guess what? They don't. But the problem with our ego is that one person that didn't say thank you feels like 10 and you don't want to do it again. But if you assume they're paying it forward, then it doesn't happen in front of you, does it? And by the way, by making that assumption, you find yourself coaching that in the very people you help, and that's how you make the world a better place, right? It's not reciprocity that makes the world go around. It's sponsorship. So so that's the final rule I live by. Uh, that's, that's amazing. I, I just love how you said that because it, it moves love off of something that is given and not a transaction. That is right, right? Biz love never having to say you owe me. <laughs> <laughs> I say that all the time. It's like, you don't owe me anything. What you owe is that next person who's up to bat. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. Well, how can our listeners find out more about you? Well, we've built for a page, timsanders.com front slash bold idea. timsanders.com front slash bold idea. On this page, we have over 30-page ebook. It's called Feed Your Mind Good Stuff. It's the entire principle out of Today We Are Rich. You can download it there. There'll also be some reading resources there and ways you can connect with me over Facebook or Twitter or even LinkedIn. That's great. And Tim, we'll also include those links in our show notes too for our listeners so they can get right at it. But want to just great. thank you for being on our program. There was so much stuff here. We're going to have to have you on again, I for know, sure. <laughs> just to dive into one of these in, in more depth. But I just love what you were saying. I, I, we need to dive into the whole thing of mentorship here, too, with you at some point. But just love the conversation. Thanks for being on the program. Thank you so much. All right. God bless, Tim. Okay. I mean, a lot to unpack there with our conversation with Tim. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I did not expect rap lyrics to be dropped <laughs> on this interview. <laughs> 
and I misjudged this cover of this book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, he is he is extraordinarily well read, and you can tell, I think, just from cultural quotations and, right. and just all the stuff that he does read. I really enjoyed as much as I have read of the book Love is a Killer App, and he's got a, a number of amazing stories in here, and really, you read a book like this, and you just go, man, I need to do some more. I read quite a bit. Yeah. But I'm like, I, I, I could step up my game. <laughs> <laughs> when you say that, it's a scary thing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of like, wow. You know, it's sometimes really inspiring to see somebody just bolt it together and put it together in such a way that says, you know, it is not something that we need to hoard and protect for ourselves, but knowledge and building up other people. I mean, that is a very biblical concept, right? right. That is a thing that is probably one of the big, bold ideas, at least that I got from reading that, is just the idea of always leaving people better than you found them, finding ways to add value where you're at, and continually just looking to stretch yourself for that purpose. And that, to me, is very appealing. What's fascinating about him is that he wrote about this idea of knowledge sharing through that book at a time before knowledge sharing was a I don't know. It wasn't exactly the most popular thing in the world to do, right? And because social media wasn't huge yet and the idea of getting followers and all that stuff wasn't necessarily a huge thing yet. And now it's what drives industry for the most part. And it's all based on knowledge sharing. Because back back in the day, if you knowledge share, you're either giving away trade secrets or you're just an arrogant schmuck who is giving some kind of unsolicited advice, right? But now it's become like a marketing tool that all businesses use. Yeah, it has. But I think there's still a twist to it today. A lot of you know thought leadership or knowledge sharing is really just back to self. In other words, right. I'm setting myself up as the expert because I want you to see me as the expert. And yeah. And what he's talking about is, you know, the whole idea of sponsors, mm-hmm. you know, and that is you're you're not here to you know, promote yourself as much as you are to make sure the other person's more successful. Right. And the direction of that is really a significant difference because it's easy to say, yeah, I'm going to accumulate knowledge, but if the knowledge is just to serve your own self-interest, then you're missing that greater purpose. Right. Speaking of purpose, I love what he said. And that, and that whole idea that it should not just be passion because passion is just Mm self-centered. And I could see where he was coming from with that. And I think there's a lot of, dialogue about, you know, follow your passions, understand what you're all about and all the rest and just do those things. But that absent something that is greater good for someone else mm-hmm. is just self-service. Yeah. And I love how he said it, how he defined compassion for himself. He says, I desire that you do not suffer. That, mm-hmm. that was one of those things that just allows you to see his heart about why he does what he does, why he communicates the way that he does, why he touches on certain topics that other people wouldn't have during a time that he did coming out of the industry that he did. It just, it just helps me see him for who he is a little bit more. Yeah. He's just a rock star. Yeah. Well, when he talked about that distinction between not just doing for yourself, but doing for others, it reminded me of that scene from a beautiful mind, you know, where John Nash and his friends are in the bar. I don't know if you saw this movie or mean, but this, I've seen the movie. I'm trying to remember the scene. Yeah, the redhead comes in with her two friends, and they all are like drawn to the redhead, I guess, or the woman in the red dress. I forget which. There was red there somewhere. (laughs) Somewhere it's got red somewhere. (laughs) But anyway, they were drawn to this one particular woman, and this is purportedly this was how the scene broke out. Was that John Nash discovered governing dynamics 
in the bar when he argued to his friends that if they all go after the one woman, then only one of them wins, two loses. But if they all go after one, if they decide who they're going to go after, so it's then they can all win. So the idea is not only pursue your selfish interest in terms of your passion, (laughs) but also do it in such a way that everyone wins. So do it for the good of others. So it's this idea of not just doing something for yourself, but doing something also for others. And that, I thought, was kind of an interesting story. So did he get the redhead? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think he did. did. So the guy who came up with the good idea? (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) See how this works out. (laughs) He was smart, you know? He was was a PhD. (laughs) In love. (laughs) This is how he got his girl. Yeah, so maybe the theory breaks down a little bit on that with that illustration. But it's still the whole idea of it's oftentimes easy when you're thinking about your bold idea to think about what do I want to do? What's important to me? And not think about what is the asset. I love how he said that. What's the asset? And then what are the opportunities? Yeah. And I think that many times that'd be difficult for us to do because we maybe don't have a good view of our assets mm-hmm. and maybe we don't have a realistic view of the breadth of opportunities that God's given us. Yeah. I mean, that's how he even talks about networking. Not that we talked about it in this conversation and other times that I've watched him. He even says, if you go into a situation and you're quote unquote networking, but your intentions are actually prospecting, you're not networking. Stop calling it that because you're making it look sleazy. Yeah. If you're there to actually just learn the people group there, make some actual connections and bond with people and exchange some actual stories, you're networking. But if you're there because you're looking for a new client, stop calling it there because you're prospecting. Yeah. And he'll say it very directly, which <laughs> I was like, oh, I love that because that that is what makes networking sleazy, right? Well, you know what? He's been to the same networking groups that you and I have both been to. That we're right. like, I don't ever want to go back again because it's yeah. just a bunch of people trying to sell, trying to sell something. Yeah. Uh. And they're missing the whole point of it. Like, you don't know who the best person is in that room with you, you know? like Well, yeah. and frankly, the likelihood of finding a buyer there is pretty remote. It's more likely that they're going to find a buyer from the people that they know, mm-hmm. you know? So why sell directly when you can gain a relationship and maybe make a connection indirectly, which would be much stronger? Well, anything else, Armin? From no, we just this? need to have him back. Oh, yeah, There's totally. so much more that he's got to offer on mentorship, networking, relationship building, and... Just the way that he could even speak to a faith community that he hasn't yet. I want to bring that out of him too a little bit. Yeah. Well, I found that, you know, getting back to, you know, are we feeding our mind the good stuff and just continuing to cultivate that? If we want to have a bold idea and bring that to life, you know, frankly, if you're not really thinking about how do I take the space and the time to really saturate myself with other writings, other people through networking, I mean, really, that's what he's talking about when he, he shares all that is how do we create a richer network for ourselves and that's where the opportunities come so just a really valuable session i think we had with tim well we hope you found it valuable for you and you're contemplating your own bold idea and we want to inspire you in that because we know that there's so much more left inside of you and that's our mean and my objective here is to through these podcasts to help you discover new things that god might be equipping you with we'd love for you to comment on the show by going to boldideapodcast.com slash 33 and that's where you'll find the links that tim talked about it'll take you right to the page that he offered to have a download from his book called today we are rich and you can download that by going to timsanders.com slash bold idea or again go back to our show notes page at boldideapodcast.com slash 33 Leave us a comment, if you like, at our show line, 612-568-IDEA, 612-568-4332. 
And you know what? Armin and I always appreciate those people who have come on and taken some time. If, you're, if you've been a listener to our program for a while, we would just love to have you take a moment and review our show at boldideapodcast.com slash review. It'll show you how to review it on iTunes or on Stitcher, and we always deeply, deeply appreciate that because it helps us get the word out about our program. We hope it's been helpful to you. And so until next week, this is Larry Gates. And Armin Asadi. Saying so long. You've been listening to the Bold Idea Podcast. To get our show notes sent to your inbox, visit boldideapodcast.com.